0: reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 23 going all the way to chapter 11 verse 1 uh, and if you're using one of our uh, blue pew bibles uh, it's on page 958 I'll give you a moment to find it uh, page 958 in your pew bibles uh, 1 Corinthians 10:23 to 11:1 Pray for the reading and preaching of God's word, Heavenly Father. We pray that you will now address us from your Word. Let all that is of you uh, land on our hearts with force, with the power of the Spirit, and let all that is not of you uh, fade, recede into the background, uh, and not be uttered, Lord, from this pulpit. And we pray, Lord, that as we are addressed by you, uh, we will uh, draw closer to you, uh, that we'll become more like you, we'll grow as a church to be able to glorify you in all things and to work for the good of our neighbors as your people. So meet with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians ten twenty-three to 11. 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in a sacrifice. Then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, We all consider a variety of factors uh, when making decisions. Sometimes our decisions are deliberate and logical. Uh, sometimes they are spontaneous and intuitive. Uh, sometimes we think that they are deliberate and logical, but they are more intuitive and subconscious than we know. Uh, usually, they are a mix of both and sometimes we make altruistic decisions and sometimes we make selfish decisions that advance our own agendas. But in all that we do, uh, there are a couple overarching principles that must govern all of our habits and all of our decisions as christians and in first ten twenty three three eleven one apostle paul says that we are to imitate Christ and do all things to the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. Uh, that's the main point of this passage. Uh, and I will talk about that in two parts. The first part of the sermon uh, will be covering verses 23 to 30 about the good of our neighbors. Uh, in the second part, we'll talk about the glory of God uh, from chapter 10, 31 to 11, 1. Paul begins in verse 23, by quoting the often used slogan of the Corinthians, which we've seen before in this uh, letter. All things are lawful, right? We saw that earlier in chapter 6, when the Corinthians were using that slogan to justify sexual immorality. Uh, So they mistakenly believed that because of their newfound spiritual freedom in Christ, uh, that now all things were permissible for them, lawful for them to do. So on the surface, that sounds similar to Paul's own teaching. He says in Galatians 5.18 that Christians who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. So we no longer have the, the, the binding force of the law on us with its penalties that are threatened against us. That's no longer on us because Christ has fulfilled the law. But that's still a distortion of Paul's teaching to say that because of Christ, now I can do all things. All things are lawful for me. Because Paul also says specifically in Romans six fourteen to 16, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? So while it is true that those who are in Christ, because Christ fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf, are no longer under the law in terms of its legal and penal demands, this did not mean that we could go on sinning as Christians, because to do so would mean that we are still enslaved to sin when Christ died to save us, to free us from sin. And so this freedom in Christ was an opportunity to keep in step with the Holy Spirit and to follow God, not to uh, do whatever we please, uh, to be lawless. And that's the difference, right, between a Christian, uh, between a legalist and a lawless person and a Christian. The lawless person doesn't want to follow God's law, so he does not follow it. The legalist does not want to follow God's law, but he follows it anyway because he has to. The Christian, on the other hand, follows the law because he wants to. The law of God is written on his heart, and the Spirit of God enlivens him and leads him. And so the mindset really of doing what is lawful is fitting for a Pharisee, a legalist, but woefully inadequate for the Christian. That's why Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five twenty, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we mistakenly think that these Pharisees held to a higher standard than we can keep. But the Pharisees kept to a lower standard than we can keep. And that's why Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, then you will not enter the kingdom of God. Because the mindset of a legalist, of a Pharisee, is essentially self-serving and self-preservationist. Their goal is to pass. right? Their goal is to not mess up, to meet the minimum requirement so they can enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the mindset of a legalist. They're just trying not to disqualify themselves. But that's different from the Christian's mindset because a Christian's mindset is not simply to pass for one's own sake, but to please God, to honor God, to glorify God. So by definition, a Christian is a maximalist and not a minimalist like a Pharisee. It's the difference between really a student who is trying to do the minimum requirement and pass and graduate and and compare that to a straight-A student who loves learning and wants to please the student. That's the difference. That's the Pharisee's righteousness and the Christian's righteousness. So for Paul, the Corinthian slogan, all things are lawful, is misleading and inadequate. And he qualifies it in verse 23. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Sure, you might have the right or authority to do such things, but that does not mean that such things are helpful or beneficial. For Paul, it's not enough that we can can do something. We need to ask whether we should do something. And then Paul continues, All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So the Christian life is not about claiming our rights, but it's about doing things that benefit and build up the church. So that means our decision-making process and everything that we do should never be purely self-centered, but oriented toward helping and building others up. That's Paul's first qualification. The proper Christian attitude is one of service, selflessness. So, and that's why, even though it might be lawful for you when you return home from a long day at work to seat yourself on the couch, to put your feet up on the table and relax, unwind, watch TV. But I'm sure, it will do you, I'm sure that will do you some good to rest and relax. But is that what is most helpful for you in that moment? Is that helpful to your spouse? Is that helpful to your children? Does it build up your children? Yes, it's lawful for you to do that, but is it helpful? Yes, it's lawful for you to spend hundreds of dollars on that latest gadget or that latest design that came out of your favorite clothing shop. And I'm sure it will do you some good because it's beautiful and useful to have those things, but is that the most helpful way for you in that time of your life to spend that money? Does it benefit only you or does it build up others? Is there a better way you can spend that money? Everyone in the world looks out naturally for their own interests. But Christians are called to not only look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's why it says in verse 24, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is another way to state the second half of the greatest commandment that Jesus taught us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because love is, by nature, self-giving and self-sacrificing. And it's one of the defining characteristics of love, as Paul writes later in chapter 13, verse 5, is that it does not insist on its own way. We're supposed to look out for the other's interests. And it's amazing that we as humans, selfishly can even turn the greatest commandment uh, to our own end for our own selfish purposes. Because how many times have you heard this? in order to love your neighbor as yourself, you need to first love yourself. So take care of yourself, treat yourself, serve yourself, then you will know how to love your neighbor as yourself. Have you heard that before? I've heard that before. That's pop psychology nonsense. That's, we know very well how to love ourselves. That's Taken for granted. Even the people with the lowest self-esteem in the world they, who hate themselves, they love themselves. In fact, it's because, precisely because they love themselves so much that they hate with such hatred the things that they don't like about themselves. That's why they pity themselves. It's because they love themselves. That's why the greatest commandment assumes our self-love, and then it tells us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Self-love is not the foundation of neighbor love. It is the impediment to neighbor love that must be overcome. That's why Paul says, Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Because seeking our own good is often at odds with seeking the good of our neighbor. And who is the neighbor whose good we must seek? Jesus answered this question in Luke Chapter 10, 25 to 37 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there, even though in that time and age, the Samaritans and Jews hated each other, refused to congregate with each other. In this story, Jesus taught the Jews who were listening that even a Samaritan is a neighbor. So that shows us that a neighbor is not someone who has the same ethnic heritage or racial heritage as you. It's not someone who was born in the same decade as you, part of the same generation. It's not someone who has the same academic pedigree as you. It's not someone that shares your preferences, opinions, and interests. A neighbor is anyone you come into contact with. A neighbor is literally your neighbor, the ones you're rubbing shoulders with. And this is so insightful uh, because given the busyness of urban living and the transience of the city that we live in and our relative anonymity in the city because there's so many people, uh, it's so easy for us to ignore the neighbors that are immediately within our reach. Isn't that true? Many of us have, have more social interactions uh, with Facebook friends that we hardly know and we have never met than our actual neighbors. Because, and because our time and resources and our emotional capacities are all limited, we could only really love a handful of people in a tangible way each day. So while it is true that we should love everyone, the Bible is so wise, that God Jesus is so com- wise to command us not to just love everyone in general, but to say, love your neighbor. Because in trying to love everyone in general, can make, we can love no one in particular. Because loving everyone is so general and abstract. And so he says, concretely, love your neighbor. And that's what Paul is saying here. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Do you love your neighbors? Do you know your neighbors? Do you make an effort to say hi to your neighbors and introduce yourselves to them? Because you can say, hey, uh, I see you around quite often, but... I've never had a chance to introduce myself to you. My name is Sean. What's your name? You get to know them. Talk to them. Ask them questions, how they're doing. And then once you get to know them and that you are in have enough relational uh, grounds, you could ask them to come over for dinner. Talk to them. See what their hopes and fears are. And speak the truth of the gospel over that. Please don't say you don't have time to get to know your neighbors. The Bible doesn't call this the polite suggestion. This is the greatest commandment. It's a matter of priority. In keeping to our own busy schedules, we are being selfish with our time and we are seeking our own good rather than the good of our neighbor. That's part of it. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. In verses 25 to 28, Paul uses an example to illustrate what this principle looks like In application, he writes in verses 25 to 26, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In Paul's day, uh, much of the meat that was sold in the markets were actually from uh, animals that had been sacrificed at the pagan feasts. Uh, So, for this reason, the Jews. uh, abstained generally from eating meat whose origin they did not know. They refused to buy meat from the meat markets. Uh, However, Paul says that this should not be an issue for the the conscience of the Christian because there is no need to be concerned about eating such food. And the reason Paul gives for this is Psalm 24.1, which he quotes. He says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is the verse that Jews often cited to say that whenever you eat something before you eat, you should thank God for it. Because it came ultimately from him. He's the origin. He's the source. So to not acknowledge him and to thank him for it is like defrauding him uh, and not, not giving him the, due, the, the thanks that is due to him. So the Jews often use this verse before they ate. And Paul is not using this for another purpose. He's saying that if this is true, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, if the whole earth belongs to God and everything that's contained therein, then all the animals in the world belong to God. And it doesn't matter who butchered it. It's ultimately from him. And so you should be able to eat it with a clean conscience. It doesn't matter that people in their ignorance had offered these animals as sacrifice to idols. These idols are nothing at all. And since God alone is creator, all that is part of creation belongs to him. So believers should partake and freely eat the meat as gifts from the Lord. Now, some of you might be thinking about our previous passage and raising some questions because this case, but different from what Paul just addressed earlier in chapter 10. Because in the first part of chapter 10, he instructed the Corinthian believers not to participate in the pagan festivals and to eat the meat that's sacrificed there. So the difference here is that those, those people in the first case, people are actually going to and participating in the sacrifices and in the pagan feasts, therefore partaking in what is essentially worship of demons in idolatry. And so Paul says, don't do that. Don't participate. Uh, However, in this case, he's not talking about being at the feast, but rather buying meat from the market, and the meat that had come from a feast, but it was sold just at a market. He's saying for those things, it's fine to consume. So this is really helpful, actually, when you think about Christian ethics, because it seems that in terms of indirect and secondary and tertiary association with the sins of this world, the Bible seems to afford considerable liberty to the Christian. He's saying, no, that's not an issue. As long as you're not directly participating in the feast, you can eat that meat. So that's why Paul says in verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So Paul recognizes it as a distinct possibility that Christians might be invited to unbelievers' houses for dinner. He says that if they are disposed to go, that they should. And not only are they free to join unbelievers for a meal, uh, he expects that in the likely event that a meat that is served in that, in that setting is a meat that had been formally purchase, purchased from the market that was sacrificed to an idol, he said there's no need to even care about its origins. You can just eat it with a clear conscience. This is quite liberal uh, for, for Paul's day. Uh, it's, it's hard to... Uh, um, grasp how difficult this would have been for, for the Jews, the, the Christian Jews at the time. Because around this time, the Jewish manual called the Jubilees, Book of Jubilees, which is from about the first century BC, uh, it says this, chapter 22, verse 16, separate yourself from the Gentiles and do not eat with them and do not perform deeds like theirs. And do not become associates of theirs, because their deeds are defiled, and all of their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. I mean, that's crystal clear, right? And so, and, but, but for the Christian, Paul says, it's okay. And, and here's the reason. If you look at Acts 10, you see an actual example of this principle being applied by Jews. And because in the, and God shows a Peter, Apostle Peter, a vision of, of unclean, all kinds of unclean, ceremonially unclean animals uh, being lowered on a sheet. Uh, and then he tells Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, of course, being the observant Jew that he is, he responds, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But then God says to him, what God has made clean, do not call common. The purpose of that vision was to show Peter that God has made the Gentiles clean and that his salvation plan is not just for the Jews, no longer just for the Jews, uh, but includes all the nations of earth. And because he had been prepared ahead of time by that vision, when Cornelius, a Gentile military commander in the Roman army, asks him to come and teach him and his household about God, Peter accepts the invitation to go to his house. And when he gets there, this is what he says. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection." And then Peter preaches the gospel to them. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, and they are all baptized as a result. So in the Old Testament, right, the primary concern, the religious concern of the Old Testament was to preserve Israel's integrity and their religious purity. And the reason for that was because they were the nation, the people from whom Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, would come. For this reason, non-Jews could be saved only by joining the Jews, becoming a Jew, by being a part of the nation of Israel. But that was only the half of the promise that God had given to Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would be made into a great nation. But he also said in Genesis 12, In Abraham all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Salvation is from the Jews, but it is not exclusively for the Jews. And so after Christ comes to save his people and after his death and resurrection, he instructs his disciples then to go and make disciples of all nations. That's what happened when Christ came. And that's why Paul's posture toward Gentiles is radically different from the posture that his fellow Jews had in his day. And so he's able to say, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Do you eat with unbelievers? When you share a home-cooked meal with someone, you're going beyond a mere acquaintance to friendship. And Paul expects believers to have that kind of table fellowship with unbelievers. Is there an unbelieving neighbor who knows you and trusts you enough to invite you over for dinner? As Christians, we are called to be set apart, but not to be separatistic. We're called to be distinct from the world, but not distant from our neighbors. How can we share the gospel with our neighbors if we don't befriend them? And if we don't befriend them, how can we claim to love them? And because love, not liberty, is the basis for Christian behavior, because we're not supposed to seek our own good, but the good of our neighbors, Paul adds verse 28. Read with me, verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. It's not exactly clear uh, uh, who this someone might be. Uh, some people assume that because Paul had mentioned in the previous chapters a Christian brother who has a weaker conscience uh, for whom you need, to, you need to, whose conscience you need to guard, uh, he thinks that, some, some people think that, that another fellow believer with a weaker conscience was invited along with you and they object saying, oh, this, is sacri- this was the meat that was sacrificed to idols. Uh, so I, there's a couple reasons why I don't think that's likely. First is that it says this has been offered in sacrifice, A more literal translation of that is this is sacrifice meat. There's a specific word that means sacrifice meat. And that's a word that the pagans used, unbelievers used, to refer to meat that was sacrificed in pagan worship, sacrifice meat. The Jews and Christians had another word for the exact same type of meat. They called it idol meat. And so the fact that this person is saying this is is sacrifice meat suggests that it's likely to be an unbeliever who is informing the Christian. And then secondly, not only is a fellow Christian that is coming with the weaker conscience not even mentioned in this context, it's unlikely that a fellow guest along with you, would, along with this person, would know the sacrificial origin of the meat. How would they know this meat came from, the, the, sac- the, the sac- was sacrificed to the, to the idols? They wouldn't know. I mean, it's not like they mark it with a stamp, right? So it's a, it's the only, it makes sense that this is probably the host, the unbelieving host who is saying that this meat was sacrificed to idols, then at this point, of course, we could ask, uh, why uh, uh, why is the host would inform the Christian of such a thing that this is sacrifice meat? And it seems to me like much like a host, you know, when you go over to someone's house, a host can uh, realize that he cooked food with nuts in it and and realized that, you know, someone might be allergic to nuts. And so he said, hey, this has nuts in it, by the way, as a way of service, as a way of courtesy, informing the guests. In a similar way, it seems that this Gentile uh, who has invited a a Christian over for dinner has prepared meat like he normally does from the meat purchased from the market. It's meat that was sacrificed to idols. But then he realized that as a Christian, the Christian might have an objection to it because this was... He thinks that to eat such a meat is to partake in idolatry and the worship that was part of the meat sacrifice. So for the sake of Christian, this unbeliever says, do not eat it. I mean, so he says, this is sacrificed meat. And in such a case, Paul says, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Because the unbeliever thinks that to eat that for the Christian would be to condone idolatry or to partake in it. Uh, And note that Paul doesn't say, hey, in that context, if they serve serve it to you, just explain to them that it's not idolatry. He doesn't say that, right? Because maybe that's not the best context to explain it to them. And how can you be guaranteed that they will believe what you say or be convinced of it? Do you know where they are in their conscience right now? They think that it's inappropriate for you to eat it as a Christian. So don't use your liberty to eat it. Abstain from it for the sake of the person who informed you. Because uh, this might prove to be a stumbling block. They might think that idolatry is okay uh, and not come to know the Lord. We are to do all things for the good of our neighbors. That's the first principle. But what exactly is the good of our neighbors? Who defines this good? That first principle can't stand alone, and that's why we turn to the second point, the glory of God. In verse 31, he teaches us a second and more fundamental principle that's supposed to govern and ground our uh, first principle. So he writes this, follow with me, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So Paul mentions eating and drinking specifically because that fits the illustration that he just used. But, and, and, uh, but the principle applies beyond eating and drinking, of course. That's why he adds the phrase, whatever you do. This principle, this principle is per- pervasive. It concerns everything that we do. Whatever we do, from the slightest thing to the weightiest thing, from the smallest to the biggest, from the most trivial to the most important, everything in our lives is to be done to the glory of God even insignificant details like what you eat and drink must be made to the service of the glory of God. That leads us to what is the glory of God. Exodus 33, 18, 19, when Moses asks God, please show me your glory, God answers, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So God's glory is a manifestation of God's goodness. It is the manifestation of God's character and attributes. The glory of God is the display of divinity. Therefore, it's unique to God. It's what makes God, God. So then to glorify God then means to acknowledge who He is, to ascribe glory that is already His to Him. That's why Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. It's not something that we give to Him that He doesn't have. It's something that we ascribe to Him because it's due to Him. It's owed to Him. It already belongs to Him. That's what it means to glorify Him. And so Isaiah 43, and and that's what we're created to do as people. We are created to glorify God, to ascribe to Him glory. So Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, God created each of us uniquely like a facet of a prism. And when the light of God's glory shines on it, we are supposed to reflect the light of the glory of God in all its glorious colors. That's humanity's purpose. That's the reason you are alive. That's the meaning of our lives. So eat to the glory of God. Sleep to the glory of God. Study to the glory of God. Exercise to the glory of God. Read to the glory of God. Babysit to the glory of God. Sell and buy to the glory of God. Teach to the glory of God. Cook to the glory of God. Change diapers to the glory of God. Talk to the glory of God. Listen to the glory of God. Tweet to the glory of God. Everything we think, everything we feel, everything we say, everything we do should be for the singular purpose of glorifying God. And there's such freedom in living that way. It simplifies your life. It's important that we get this because without seeking the glory of God first, we will not know how to seek the good of our neighbors. Those two things go hand in hand. That's why the greatest commandment has two parts. First, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God is the reason behind one's love for our neighbor. And one's love for neighbor is a necessary expression of our love for God. And that's why he says here, in order to seek the good of our neighbors, we need to seek the glory of God. Now, if we don't hold those two things together, we will misunderstand verses 32 to 33. Read that with me. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That can be mis- misinterpreted if you're merely thinking about the good of our neighbor without thinking about the glory of God, because Paul's not saying here that we should sacrifice our Christian convictions in order to please our neighbors. We live among people whose sensibilities are frequently offended, whose feelings are easily hurt and paul's not saying that we shouldn't ever say or do anything to offend anyone in that kind of superficial sense the gospel of jesus christ itself teaches us that we are sinners in need of a savior and that truth alone is offensive to the vast majority of unbelievers if we are so concerned about not offending them then we would never share the gospel with them That's not what Paul is talking about. Our neighbors have all kinds of wrong ideas about what is true and just and right, and it would be sinful for us to compromise our convictions. That's not what Paul is talking about. The word give offense here literally means give no cause for stumbling. It's the negative form of the word that Paul used, a stumbling block in chapter 8, verse 9, where he said, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So it means when he says, give no cause for stumbling, when he says, give no offense to anyone, he means don't put up any unnecessary obstacles to people coming to Christ. Don't make them stumble in their pathway, in their way to Christ. That's what Paul means by give no offense. And this is confirmed by the purpose clause at the end of verse 33. What is the purpose for which we should give no offense to anyone? That they may be saved. That's the goal. That's the driving purpose of not giving offense is that they may be saved. So Paul's really kind of reiterating what he already said in chapter 9, 20 to 22, where he said, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Paul's not trying to please people for the sake of pleasing people. He's trying to please people for the sake of pleasing God, for the sake of saving them. That's why in another context in Galatians, Paul says, like, I'm not seeking the approval of man. He says, am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians 1. This is not a contradiction. because if, So if you're a people pleaser and you avoid confrontations like a plague, so much so that you would never dare to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with anyone lest you, un, lest you offend them, then you're definitely not pleasing people as Paul is talking about. He said that he was not seeking his own interest own advantage but that of many that they may be saved people pleasers on the other hand are seeking their own interest and their own advantage so that they could be thought well of so that they could be not thought of as foolish so they could avoid being embarrassed that's self-seeking to interpret these verses in that way to to try not to be afraid of offending anyone in the possible order to try to please them in that sense that's 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 a total distortion of what Paul's teaching in this passage That's self-serving cowardice, not self-sacrificing courage, which is what Paul's calling us to. So the ultimate good of our neighbors, because we see it in the context of the glory of God, is their salvation. Trying to please everyone in everything, everyone in everything one does, that parallels doing all to the glory of God. Doing all to the glory of God parallels doing everything for everyone to please them. And note the categorical nature of Paul's statement. He doesn't say that he tries to please some people in some things. He says he tries to please everyone in everything so that he might save them. Do you make your everyday decisions with the salvation of your neighbors in mind? Do you do everything that is within your power to do it for everyone that is in your life? When you decide where you're going, dinner who you invite to your house which community events to attend where to send your kids to school where to go to school do you have the salvation of your neighbors in mind or do you have only your interest in mind are you content with being on friendly terms with your neighbors without ever sharing the saving news of Jesus Christ with them sure you might be seeking their good in some smaller ways but are you seeking their ultimate good are you seeking to save them? What would it look like then for us to try to please everyone in everything, not seeking our own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved? So this is a little bit hard to apply, right? Because Paul's talking about meat, sacrificed meat that's being sold in the marketplace. He says, I, I will go to an unbeliever's house and eat it, but if they mention that it was sacrificed to idols for his conscience' sake, I will refrain from eating it. So that's what Paul, that's the principle that Paul's teaching us. How does this apply Uh, to us. Maybe some of your co-workers invite you to uh, work social at a local bar. You can go and enjoy yourself and drink in moderation. And that's a great opportunity to share the gospel with them. There's nothing inherently sinful about drinking and as long as you stay sober and as long as you're not leading any other weak believer with a weaker conscience into sin by doing so, the Christian has the liberty to do so. Like Paul, we can go over to an unbeliever's house and eat his meat with a clear conscience. For another example, many of our neighbors in Cambridge and greater Boston area are very environmentally conscious. And you might have uh, a neighbor who is very mindful of her own carbon footprint, and she might think that using styrofoam cups is destroying our environment. I have a lot of neighbors who think that way. So this is not just a hypothetical situation. Uh, And so this might be a non-issue for you. You might agree with her. You might not. Maybe you're aware that if foam cups are recycled, which you can't do through the Massachusetts system, but you can by taking it to recycling companies like Refoam It in Newton, If you actually recycle it, it has a much less, uh, it's it's much better in terms of carbon footprint than actual paper cups. So maybe you're aware of that and you have freedom with regard to using styrofoam cups. But regardless, because you know of your neighbor's convictions and his or her conscience sake, for the sake of your neighbor, you choose not to put that stumbling block when you have that person over to your house for a party and have styrofoam cups sitting on that table. I know that seems like a really small thing, right? But eating meat, sacrifice to idol, was a very small thing for Apostle Paul. It doesn't matter. I could eat that whenever I want, Paul said, but for the sake of that person, I will not eat it. If it's an important issue for your neighbor, it's an important issue for you for the sake of removing the stumbling block. Or maybe your unbelieving neighbor invites you to a TV viewing party, but because he knows you're a Christian, he warns you, just so you know, there's a lot of, graphic and gratuitous sex and violence in this show now there are a lot of good biblical reasons not to watch a TV show that has a lot of graphic and gratuitous sex and violence so this may not be something that you could do with a clear conscience anyway but let's imagine that you can you're one of those people who are not affected by these things or you're at least convinced that you're not affected by these things and you don't think that it's sinful to watch it even if you have the liberty regarding an issue because your neighbor has warned you for the sake of your conscience, not for your conscience' sake, for the sake of his conscience, so you don't put a stumbling block in front of him by showing that person that it's okay for Christians to participate in gratuitous sex and violence, so you don't put a stumbling block in front of your neighbor, refrain from going to the party, and use that opportunity to say no as an opportunity to share the gospel and the hope that you have in Christ. If we're honest with ourselves, it was really hard to come up with examples that might be relevant to you, but you could probably think of more in your life as things come up as you relate to your neighbors. But if we're honest with ourselves, we don't do this perfectly. And we are to do all things to the glory of God and the good of our neighbors, but often we do things for our own glory and our own good. And that's where the chief problem of humanity lies. Human beings are by default glory thieves. We steal the glory that is due to God and live to glorify ourselves. We're like that brat that goes to a friend's birthday party and then makes the party all about himself. Right? Even though all indications, the signs on the walls, the name written on the cake, all the gifts, everything points to the fact that it's your friend's birthday, but that brat must make that party all about himself. That's us in this World with all creation pointing to the glory of God, saying that it was all created for Him, and we want to make it all about us. Live for our own glory, or we're like that rude conference attendee who, during the Q and A session after the talk, instead of asking a question like he's supposed to, gives a ten-minute monologue as if he were the expert on the subject and the speaker of the topic. We're vain. We have illusions of grandeur. And we live like we are unimpressed with and unaware of God's presence. We ought to be learning from Him and submitting to Him, but we presume to teach God and make Him fit our narrow and erroneous view of life. That's why Romans 3.23, which we read from, says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Instead of doing all things to the glory of God, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we can't do all things for the good of our neighbors either. I used that analogy of the prism earlier, that we're supposed to reflect the glory of God in our unique way in which God created us. But instead of reflecting and displaying the light of God's glory, we have become chipped and clouded prisms that distort the light of God's glory, that block it and not let it through. That's the biggest problem facing humanity, the sin that separates us from God. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ Please pay attention to this. Until you deal with this issue, until you make this right, your life will always feel off kilter. You will feel like a misshapen puzzle piece that you're unable to make fit into the grand scheme of God's plan for your life and for this world. You will be successful and accomplished without feeling fulfilled. You will be wealthy and well fed, but you will feel empty. You will have many friends and admirers yet feel lonely and not fully known. You will be recognized and esteemed yet feel like an imposter and a hypocrite. That's because you're not fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. Your life needs to be realigned and reordered according to God's will for you. But none of you can make this right in your own strength. We can't restore our relationship with God on our own, and that's why God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6, Paul writes that what saves us is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And later in the same chapter, he writes, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we get restored to that place where we're giving glory to God? How do we get restored to that place where we are doing all things to His glory and we're no longer falling short of the glory of God? It's the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's by looking into the face of Jesus Christ who came to save us, though we fell short of God's glory. Christ was the perfect embodiment of God's glory. And even though He alone deserved that glory, He didn't glorify himself. He humbled himself even to the point of dying on the cross for our sins so that we can share in his glory. Paul told us to try to please everyone that they might be saved. That's what Christ did for us. Romans 15:1 to 3 tells us what Christ did. It says, We who are a strong have an obligation to pair with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ traded his glory for our reproach. Christ deserved honor. He deserved praise. He deserved glory. Christ should not have been reproached. Christ had every right to please himself. But he chose not to please himself. To please, to to please his father. To please us. To save us. And that's why Paul closes this section with chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christ in his self-giving love became the paradigm by which all of us are supposed to live. So, before we have a moment of silence to reflect on this, let me ask you some questions. What rights can you give up for the sake of your neighbors? What conditions can you give up for their sake? In what ways have you been living for your own glory? How can you reform your life so that you can live for God's glory let's imitate Christ and do all things to the glory of God and the good of our neighbors please take a moment in silence to reflect on this and to respond to this in prayer